Welcome to the York Story Slam podcast, where we feature select stories from our monthly open mic storytelling events in York, Pennsylvania. On November 30th, the nine winners from our monthly open mic story slams return to compete for the title of Best Storyteller in York. We gathered virtually this year to hear stories recorded at the beautiful Appel Center in downtown York, where our storytellers took the stage in a socially distanced but festive environment. The theme for the evening was next time. We heard stories of memorable animal interactions, wishing for a do-over, and the lessons we can learn from relationships. Randy Schultz won with his story of his reactions to three different snake-related scenarios. Here's Randy. I, I am seven years old. We're on vacation at this little cottage, a little lake in Wisconsin with my family. And I'm super excited because my dad has just let me take the rowboat onto this little lake by myself. And it's one of those don't tell mom moment kind of things. And so I get in the boat and I'm rowing out, I'm 30 or 40 feet from the shore. And all of a sudden, I look, I'm coming up from underneath the, the, the bench seat in front of the boat, there's a snake slithering out towards me. And I jump up and I, I don't know what to do because I'm a Disney guy too. And the only thing I know about snakes is what I learned in the Disney movie, The Jungle Book, in which the giant python, Kai, tries to eat the little boy Mowgli. And so I yell, Dad, Dad, snake! And he can't hear me because he's probably 100 yards away. He can't make out what I'm saying. And the snake's still slithering at me. So I decide what I'm, I don't think about what I'm going to do. I just abandon ship. I jump into the lake. My dad sees me jump in. And I'm only seven years old, so I just learned how to swim. But you should have seen me. I was like a torpedo going to that dock. I never went through the water that fast. And I get there, and my dad comes sprinting down to the dock to see what's going on. And I'm coughing out about 12 gallons of water as I'm trying to tell him that I was in the boat, and there's a snake in the boat. And my dad looks at me kind of skeptically, like, there's probably a rope jiggling around in there or something. But heroically, my dad jumps into the water, and he swims out to the boat and grabs the tie-up rope on the front of it and tows it back into the dock. And then he looks and fortunately confirmed my claim that there is actually a snake in the boat. And I don't know what to do, but my dad is calm, and he looks in there, and he reaches in very carefully, and he picks up the snake. And I'm like, well, man, my, my dad's a superhero. You know, I, I couldn't believe that he was doing this thing. He's got this fearsome snake that I was afraid of that was going to eat Mowgli that's really the cause of the fall of humankind from the Garden of Eden. And my dad is just handling it. I'm in awe of him. And he looks at it and he shows me it's just a garden snake. You know, it hurt anything. It just eats insects. And by the time my dad had got done with it, I was holding the snake. And I felt pretty good about myself, too. And that was a great experience because the next time I had to deal with a snake, it was for real. I was... 15 years later, and I'm in the Army, in Army Ranger School, which is very demanding. I'm sleep deprived, food deprived, and um, I'm in a foxhole outside Pensacola, Florida. And there's, um, it's like the middle of the night, we're doing this raid patrol. And I'm in the, I'm supposed to be keeping a vector watch, and I've got a rifle in the foxhole, and I commit the cardinal sin. I fall asleep on my rifle. And when I wake up, uh, my head is looking under my arm, and curled up in this little dome under my armpit is a snake. And I don't know what kind of a snake, because the head is on the other side, and it's too dark and gray, I can't see the pattern. But I see at the end of the body is a rattle. And I think, 
oh my God, this is the end. But I, I think through a few options, I'm kind of calm. I kind of remember my dad's calmness. And then I decide what to do. I push myself back to the other side of this foxhole, and I hold up the, bot, the butt of my rifle to like knock the snake down if it charges at me or something. Maybe if I'm lucky, pin it. But the snake just keeps on sleeping because it was January in, uh, in Florida where I was, and it was like cold at night, like a frost rain. I was looking for a place to go into semi-hibernation. So I, you know, I didn't want to disappoint the snake, but I slithered out the back of that foxhole myself and looked for a different place to defend my position. And that was also an important lesson because the next time I had a snake episode, I have two little kids to defend. And this happens when my wife calls me down to our basement and says, the dryer's making a strange noise, and it's not even turned on. And so I've got a kid, a son who's five and a daughter who's three, and they think, you know, we'll go, they're, they're, they're constantly bored, so they'll go down and do anything with me. And so my wife and the kids go down, and as soon as we walk in, I see the little plastic vent tube in the back of the dryer is moving around back and forth, and I say, oh, you know what? We've had some mouse problems. There's probably a mouse got into that thing, so. I'm gonna go let him out. And the kids are all like, a mouse, can we keep him? Is it a pet, can we name him? Can we name him Gus Gus? And uh, I, you know, so I go down, I open up the little tube, and the kids are as close as they can get to see the mouse first, and the snake comes flying out of the dryer tube. And the kids are like yelling and screaming because the only thing they know about snakes is what they learned in the Disney movie Jungle Book, where Ka tries to eat the little boy Mowgli. And so they're running around super, you know, screaming. And my wife is chasing the kids, trying to catch them and comfort them. And the snake has scared all of these people. And it's just supersonic slithering all over the place. And I look at my whole family and say, stop. Say, settle down, you're scaring the snake. And they look at me like I'm crazy if they think the, I think the snake is half as afraid as they are. But I catch the snake again, and it's kind of like the same thing with my dad. I show to the kids and say, you know, he didn't mean to hurt you, he's just a garden snake. And, you know, they get to pet him and whatever, and they name him Gus Gus, and we take him out to the bushes in the back and let him go. And so that was, um, that was the last major episode. And I, I still go out hiking a lot, see a lot of snakes, and when I do, I constantly think of those episodes. And I think, well, my kids are about 30 now, about the age I was when I passed down what my dad taught me to them. So I hope they've taken over the snake handling tradition in the family, because if it has to happen again, I hope they do it the next time. Lynn took home the trophy and bragging rights as the best storyteller in York. Next up, we have a story from Tony Crocomo, who shared the story of a surprising way his parents showed affection. If you are like me, there are events or moments in your life that we'd like to have a do-over, because then, the next time, you could avoid hurting someone you loved. I'll give you an example. When I was growing up, my parents seldom displayed affection in front of me or my three sisters. They were of a generation that considered public displays of affection to be inappropriate, and I believe that carried over into their home life to some extent. And, you know, they didn't hold hands. The kisses we saw were just pecks on the cheek, really. And even those were reserved for special occasions, birthdays, holidays, anniversaries. There, Romance, their endearments for each other were private, just for them. 
My parents were married in 1942, during the first 10 months or so of, of World War II, and I believe the war pushed them together by scaring them that they would be separated. Their courtship, I'm convinced, was a bit rocky because of my grandmother, Grammy, an old world Italian woman, matronly woman. She didn't fully appreciate my mother. And I want to be clear about this. It was not because my mother was Irish. It was because she wasn't Italian. <laughs> a little difference there. So as I said, they married in 1942. And by the time my first sister was born, my father's anti-aircraft battalion was en route to Tunisia. And for the next two years, the only contact my parents had was through the letters they wrote to each other. And all of those letters were written on V-mail. That's V for victory. V-mail. Now the V-mail process was interesting. It was developed to save precious cargo space for war materials. And the process was simply, you got a form, and the forms were available uh, at stateside post offices and distributed throughout the armed forces. You wrote the letter on the form. It was shipped off to be photographically reduced and put in microfilm. And it did save a lot of space. With the V-Mail process, you could get 150,000 letters into one mail bag. So it saved a lot of space. And of course, the letters were enlarged before delivery. They kind of looked like sepia prints. In 1956, my sisters and I, while playing in our basement, discovered a trove of these letters from my father to my mother. They were in a, a small barrel that was sealed. I guess it had always been there near the 100-gallon oil tank that fed the furnace. And we opened it up. And we found these strange, they looked like pictures of letters, and we didn't know what they were. And we realized they were from my father to my mother, and written during the war. And it took us a while to decipher his, his cramped handwriting. He wasn't writing under the best of circumstances at all times. And what really amazed us was the romantic language and the terms of endearment he used for my mother and my sister. I mean, pet names. My father. This was a side of him with which we were not acquainted. And it was wonderful, but we thought it was hysterical. We, we read them as kids in, in these sing-song voices, and we were laughing uproariously, and our laughter was interrupted by our mother who was calling us to dinner, and we grabbed some letters, and we ran upstairs, and we're just babbling on about what we'd found. Our parents didn't know what we were talking about. My father was at his usual place at the head of the table. My mother was putting the food on the table. And they did not know what we had found until we started to read the letters at the dinner table in those thin, songy voices, pointing out grammatical errors, misspellings, and laughing at the pet names. Now, my parents were impassive for a few moments, and then my mother just violently pushed the chair away from the table and said, those are mine. She reached out, we held up the letters, she grabbed them in a careless embrace and took them to the basement. A minute or two later, we could hear her come upstairs from the basement, but she didn't return to 
the table. I waited a couple of minutes and I went outside to see where she was and I could see mom in, in the backyard watching as 10 feet in front of her the barrel of love letters burned. To keep them for herself, she had to keep them from us. And sadly, sometimes in life, there is no next time. Our final story on this month's podcast comes from Mina Edmondson. Mina told the story of how she's managed her mother's many phone calls. Here's Mina. When you're growing up, you don't realize that there will come a time in your life when your relationship with your parents will kind of flip-flop. As you're getting older, your parents are getting older. My mother is now in her mid-80s. Um, she's been divorced for decades. She lives alone, and I am her only living child. She's lost three children. My relationship with my mom has never been hunky-dory. There's always been some tensions and things, but I feel an obligation to, you know, to be around her as much as I can or to connect with her as I can. Well, she lives south of Baltimore, and as she's gotten older, when she retired from her job, her way of communicating has changed. You used to be able to talk about, oh, how was work today, or, you know, where did you drive that car she drove for a rental company, and, you know, there were stories. Those stories have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller as time has gone on, and her desperation to connect has increased monumentally. My mother will call me five or six times a day, my cell phone rings, while I'm at work, and she'll leave a message. Mina, it's your mother. Call me. An hour later, another message. Mina, it's your mother. Why haven't you called me? An hour later. Mina, it's your mother. I'm getting worried. Why don't you call me? And so when I get home at the end of the day, I'll call her and I say, you know, Mom, is everything okay? You know, I was at work. I can't talk on the phone at work. And she'd say, oh, oh, yeah, I just wanted you to know that I found some boiled peanuts in the grocery store today and I bought 10 cans and wanted to know if you wanted some. Uh, well, no, I don't want boiled peanuts. Thank you very much. But this was that urgent thing that she had to connect with me about during the day. And I tried to tell her, I can't talk on the phone while I'm working. Well, it got to the point that she then began calling work. And she would get the, the main desk at work and say, this is Mina's mother. I haven't been able to talk to her all week. Can you put her on the phone? And they would transfer the call to me, you know, worried that I hadn't connected with my mother. And, well, Mom, what is it you need? Well, they had tomatoes on sale at the grocery store this week, and I bought tomatoes and an ear of corn, and I'm going to have them for dinner tonight with a cake of cornbread. Okay, I really did not need to leave time off work for that conversation to happen. Now, since my brothers had passed, it had gotten worse. But her realm of experience was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And she would continue to do these calling all the time. And I finally said, we need to pull this together. We need to set some boundaries here because I can't be on the phone with you all of the time. 
I will call you once a week on Saturday or Sunday, depending upon when I work. And we can talk then. You're, you may call if there's an emergency, and I mean a real emergency, so when I pick up that phone, I know you really needed to talk to me. Most of the time, she did pretty good. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was sitting at lunch with my daughter, and we were talking, and my phone rang, and I saw it was my mother, and I sort of made the mistake of picking it up. And actually, she had a couple of things to talk about that day. She wanted to talk about, she was beginning to plan some for when she passes and needed some information for insurance forms and things. And that was brought on by the fact that my brother had just passed and had no information left behind. And then she started talking about my nephew and how wonderful he's been and how good he's been to her and how good he was to my brother. And I'm sitting there shaking my head because I know that a year ago, she called him every name in the book. He was the worst kid in the world. He wasn't doing anything right. And I knew that the only reason he was with my brother when he passed is because he was on house arrest and couldn't be at his house, so he was living at my brother's house. Okay, so we were going on and finally, you know, we hang up, I thought, and I talked to my daughter and she says, well, what was that all about? And I said, well, she's wanting information, she's preparing some documents and things, which is a good thing, but she was going on and on about how wonderful my nephew was. And she just doesn't understand, at this point he's using her, trying to get in tight with her, and you know, that he, the only reason he was there was because my brother, you know, that he had to be because of the situation. and. About 20 minutes later, the phone rang, and I looked, and it was my mother. Hi, Mom, what do you need? Mina, it's your mother. Next time you're going to talk about me, make sure you hang the phone up first. We'd like to extend huge thanks to KBG Injury Law for sponsoring this year's Grand Slam. The themes for our 2022 season have already been announced on our website, yorkstoryslam.com, so take a look and plan to join us in January and all year long. While you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is YorkStorySlam. You can also follow us on Facebook and watch videos of all the stories from our events on our YouTube channel. We are planning to return to in-person events in a new location in 2022, and we hope to see you on stage soon. Thanks for listening.